Keep tending the first fire. The year was 2002. It was summer. I was six years old. And living in Southern California up in that, all, all my life up until that point, I'd always heard how fun it was to have a bonfire at the beach. But on that day in summer, 2002, I was going to get to see and experience my first one. It was going to be so cool. So imagine Tiny Matt running down the beach to the bonfire pits, and I wanted to reserve the best one for us. My uncle was like, hey, would you mind helping me start this bonfire? And I was like, are you kidding me? Not only do I get to see this thing, I get to help start it. And we light it. It goes up, and it's amazing. I'm feeling so proud. Like, this day is going to go down in history. And uh, we're at the beach, so of course I got to go swim in the water for a little bit. I swim, and when I'm done swimming, I come back to the shallows. I'm just standing on the shore, and I'm just looking at the horizon, taking in this beautiful day. And all of a sudden, my field of vision goes from right here to right here without even me realizing. It's like I blacked out. I'm like, what in the world just happened? I look floating next to me in the water, floating away from my leg is a jellyfish, a dead jellyfish. Apparently, they still sting you when they're dead. And I could barely move. I can't get up. I'm like hobbling over to my family, to my cousins. I'm freaking out. I thought I was going to die. They're going to have to amputate my leg. So I tell my cousins, I just got stung by a jellyfish. What do I do? And immediately, they're all like, let's pee on it. <laughs> and six-year-old me, I'm like, pee on the jellyfish? What? Some y'all didn't get that. But uh, the, the adults are like, don't do that, please. That's dumb. Just sit down here. You're going to be fine. So after an hour, I start getting feeling back on my leg, and I start getting hungry. One of my aunts is eating some, some snacks. I'm like, hey, can I have some of those? And she's like, sure. She pours a pile of pumpkin seeds into my hand, and I just, I inhale them. I'm hungry. And I'm like, they're okay. Not really my thing, but whatever. A minute goes by, and I'm like, my tongue is real itchy, and my throat is starting to get real, like, itchy on me for some reason. Another two minutes goes by, and I'm like, man, my entire chest is itchy. Like, everywhere is itchy. What's going on? Three minutes goes by. I can't even barely breathe anymore. Turns out I'm severely allergic to pumpkin seeds, and I need to be rushed to the emergency room. So here I am on what's, like, supposed to be the best day ever. I'm in the emergency room, hives all over my body. I can barely breathe. My cousins want to pee on me. I'm like, just take me back to the beach, dude. I'm I'm tired. They let us go, like they send me on my way after I feel better after a few hours. And we go back to the beach, and I'm like, my cousins are probably all gone. They're probably all done at the beach at this time. It's late. It's dark by now. But we start heading to the beach, and I see in the distance as we pull up the bonfire I helped start. And they still had it going. And so I join them, and we start laughing and telling stories. And real soon, I start feeling 100 times better than I did because I was near the fire that I helped start at the beginning of the day. And I realized in that moment, that day I learned the lesson that there's something special about returning to the first fire. Keep tending the first fire. I'm happy that in that moment I didn't just call it quits and give up and say, okay, well, I'm done. Take me back home. I wanted to see that bonfire to the end. I saw it at the beginning, and I was going to see it to the end. But that's not really the status quo in our culture today. Our culture today is not too focused on a little word called commitment. We say, I want what I want right now, and if I'm not happy, I'm moving on to the next thing. You know, we want that next day shipping. 
We want that new iPhone, even though our current one works fine. We want that shiny new thing just because it's shiny and new. And pretty soon we graduate to thinking of like, man, who needs this old car? Who needs this old house? And I'm not saying we never get new things, but if we allow that thinking to go too far, pretty soon we start getting tired with the things in our life we were supposed to be faithful to. I wonder if it's the same way in our relationship with God. How committed are you right now? Maybe you're here and your relationship with God is not as passionate as it once was. Maybe you're here and, man, you've been doing a bunch of things, but you just don't feel the same connection with Jesus you used to. Or maybe you're here and you just genuinely have gotten your teeth kicked in by life, that this, your body's been racked with health issues or pain, and you found it more difficult to trust in the promises of who God is. Maybe you're here and someone wasn't committed or faithful to you. And even inadvertently, you transferred that distrust to God and His character. The troubling thing about all of these is that the enemy wants you to forget your commitment. The enemy's trying with everything in his power to make sure you don't think it's worthwhile to go back to the thing you were faithful to. He wants you asking questions that will promote distrust and dishonesty and lack of commitment. Like, man, why do I need these old friends when I can just get new ones? Why do I need this old small group? That one doesn't have kids. Maybe it's quieter. That church has a newer building. I'll just go there. Why work at my struggling marriage when I can just start a new one? Are you madly in love with God right now? Or if you were honest, truly honest, would you say, no, there was a time when I was more passionate than I am right now, more committed than I am right now, more in love than I am right now? If you answer yes, it's not that you're a bad person or you're doomed, but it might be that you did exactly what the enemy hoped you'd do and you left the first fire go unattended. Today we're going to learn you need to keep tending the first fire. Today we're starting a brand new sermon series called Letters to the Church. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be reading out of the book of Revelation. Today we'll be starting in chapter 1, verse 9, if you want to turn there with me. Revelation 1, 9. Revelation is the last book of the Bible. It was written by a man named John, who was a real person who actually existed 2,000 years ago. He was a disciple of Jesus. He, he spent time one-on-one -on -one with Jesus, God in the flesh, and he wrote this book in the year 95 A.D., and Revelation's a book a lot of Christians avoid because it can get cryptic or seem symbolic. But let's remember, this is the inspired Word of God for us today. And if, we are a, if we're allowing of it, He will teach us something today. And Jesus is approaching a group of people, teaching a group of people in Revelation chapter 1 who He knows need to tend the first fire again. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9, it says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos. Someone say Patmos. For the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the Roman Empire had spent years persecuting John for spreading the gospel, for teaching about Christ. And after a failed execution attempt, they said, all right, we're done with you. 
go be exiled to the island of Patmos. And if you turn here, you can see, this is like, I feel like Bill Taylor right now. Patmos right here with a cold front coming in. Patmos is right here. This is like modern-day Greece, Athens right here. And in the midst of all these islands, you have a tiny one called Patmos. And they exiled John here. And in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it picks up. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So these are the seven churches we'll be covering in this series. The cool thing is these are actual places that really existed in modern-day Turkey. In the olden days, they called it just Asia, Asia Minor. And if we believe the Word of God, which we do, that means these are going to be letters directly from Jesus to his churches. Think of the weight of that. I mean, if Jesus wrote you a letter, would you take that seriously? I hope so. And in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is now telling John, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write. So today we will be starting our series focusing on that first city right here, Ephesus. It's the first one and it's the closest to Patmos, where John is writing. little background on Ephesus, okay? So Ephesus is the largest city in Asia at this time. It's a trade port. It's a major city, major area where people come to visit. And this was actually where one of the first Christian churches was planted. This is arguably one of the most, if not the most well-documented church in all the New Testament. Like if you rewind back to Acts chapter 19, this is the Ephesus that Paul visits where he's like, have you guys been baptized in the Holy Spirit? We're like, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. Okay, be baptized in the Holy Spirit. And they start speaking in tongues and prophesying and the church starts. Remember the book Ephesians? That's this Ephesus. The books 1st and 2nd Timothy, this was Timothy's home church. Like this is a stacked church. This is a historical church. And in Revelation 2, 2, this is Jesus talking directly to Ephesus now. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. You have persevered, had patience, you have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. This sounds like a good church. That word labored actually means like to work to the point of exhaustion. They're working themselves to the bone for Jesus. But even with all this working for their good, Jesus continues in verse 4 and he says this word that I want to capture all of our attention right now. It's a word that says, nevertheless. Someone say it with me. Nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Wow. That's a big deal. Jesus is saying, I'll remove your lampstand from its place. Essentially, what he's saying is, I will remove you as a church from the face of the earth unless you do this. And that word, nevertheless, it means in spite of all this. 
That means all the good that the Ephesian church was doing couldn't cancel out this one bad Jesus was describing. So Jesus is saying, listen up, because this is important. And more likely than not, uh, like my Bible, in your Bible, the translator probably put a caption above the, the, uh, the paragraph that says something like, the loveless church, or the church without love. That wasn't written by the Apostle John. That was by the translator, whoever translated it. And I, in my opinion, they got it wrong. Because Jesus didn't say, you've lost your love, you become loveless. What did he say? He said, you lost your first love. The problem with the Ephesians was not that they didn't have love. The problem was that they didn't have love to the fervent degree they originally had love. And here's why this is so dangerous and so important for us, even today, to understand. Because so few of us will consider ourselves loveless. But this wasn't a loveless church. This was simply a church that loved less. You see that? Now how many of us can that apply to? Now how many of us need to be on guard? Do you love God the same way you used to? Because if you don't, Jesus is saying, Ephesus, if you don't love me the same way you used to or even more than that, it's better that I don't even have you as a church that you're not even around altogether. Maybe you're here and you love God less than you used to. Maybe you're here and you you don't know how to get that back. And it says that I'll remove your lampstand. It's not enough for us to come in here today and think, okay, this is a good verse. I'm going to feel guilty for myself and I'm just going to leave. Or even come in here and think, okay, I know what I'm doing. God wants me to love him more, Matt. No need for a sermon. Check. It's not enough for us to feel guilty. You could even come up here and cry. You could feel emotions. But if you don't return back to your first love, this sermon is worthless and meaningless. This letter is falling on deaf ears. Because in a church and city as stacked and historical as Ephesus, if they can get it wrong, how much more in danger are we of getting it wrong? We need to keep tending the first fire. And Jesus shows us a way to avoid the pitfalls that Ephesus fell into. To get back that first love. In verse 5, let's rewind. We already read this, but Jesus says three key things. He says, remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works. Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Remember, repent, do. You know, studying this passage of Scripture and preparing for today, I wanted to get another verse that, like, exemplified the love of God to try to summarize it in one verse, and it clicked with me, duh. There's one verse, one command that God calls his greatest command. It's called the Shema. It's in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord God with all your, and all your, and all your, good job, heart, soul, strength, remember, repent, do, heart, soul, strength, remember, repent, do. As I started to study these two, they they began to parallel one another. 
I saw that as you start to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength, that's how you begin again to remember, repent, and do. When you remember the former way you used to love him, you are opening up your heart once again to God winning your affection and your love and your desire back. You remember what it was like to just be so more than infatuated, just in love with God, where you didn't, I don't care how silly I look, I don't care what anyone else thinks when I sing out loud, because you're the only opinion that I care about. When you would like cry out, literally cry, like sometimes you had to pull over on the side of the road because you were just in tears the way you were worshiping in your car. Remember that kind of love? Somewhere along the line, things changed. When we allow God to restore our heart by remembering him, we point our affections back to him and we open the door for the next one. So it's remember, heart. Now it's repent soul. I'll just say it in plain English. You cannot ever love God properly if your soul is not right with him. And at the core of its meaning, repent means to to do an about turn, do a 180 from where you're currently going and, and go back to where you were. In essence, it means to say those two words so few of us enjoy saying, I'm sorry to acknowledge what you've done. Get rid of the things that you built up in your life that are taking you away from God. For some people, it could be pride, it could be selfishness, it could be sin, it could be laziness. Whatever it is, it's causing separation from you and Jesus, and it's blocking you from fully giving God your soul. You need to repent. And when you do those first two of repent and remember, then he says, do the former works. When we do this, we love God with all our strength, with all our energy, with all our will. Do you remember how everything you did for God, no matter how tiring it was, seemed worthwhile because it was for the one who your heart desired? When you're in love, you don't care how tired and exhausting it's going to cost or what it costs you. It's not just about what you did in the past. It's why you did them in the past because I was just so in love with God. I was happy to exhaust myself for him because it was for him. And this is not something you can just accidentally fall into. One of the great lies of our generation, of our day and culture today, is that you can fall in love and fall out of love. But you ever notice how, like, maybe you go on dates with your spouse or you just go with friends or you're at a restaurant or somewhere and you see a bunch of different couples on dates, right? But there's that one couple that we're all moved to the bone to. It's that old couple, that 80-year-old couple that can barely even get around, but somehow they manage it, and they're like holding each other's hands and kissing, and they're, they're just, you know, talking to each other, and you can tell they're in love. And we're all just like, oh, my gosh. And we all say the same thing. That's going to be me one day. That's going to be us. <laughs> but let me fill you in on a little secret. They did not get that way on accident. They didn't get that way because they just lucked out and found the right person. They got that way because somewhere along the line, they told each other, no matter how difficult it's going to be, no matter how exhausting it's going to be, we're going to stick this thing out to the very end, and we're going to love each other more at the end of this than we did ever at the beginning of this. And it's a constant reminder 
to remember, to repent, to do, to love with your heart and soul and strength. And this is so much more important than just an earthly relationship. This is about a commitment to an eternal one. And when you do this right, everything will seem to fall in place. But if we get this wrong, everything else will seem to fall apart. And we see a passage in Scripture, a person in Scripture who illustrates this to the T. Let's rewind a little bit to when Jesus is on the earth. And he's with his disciples in the Last Supper. And one of his disciples, Simon Peter, big mouth Peter, he says, Lord, I'll never abandon you. I'll never betray you. I'll never walk away from you. If you go to death, I'll go with you to death. I'll always be by your side. But what happens? In Mark 14, verses 53 through 54, Jesus is arrested this night, and they kidnap him in the middle of the night. And it says in Mark 14, and they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and elders and scribes. But Peter followed him, look at these three words, at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he sat with the servants and warmed himself. Someone say warmed himself at the fire. Here's brave Peter who said, I'll never abandon you, and in the moment when Jesus is actually in need, we find him choosing to be on the outskirts, choosing to be near a flame. And that word for it, warmed himself by the fire, the fire word actually means small fire, mini fire, like this was, they made, the servants made a fire of coals that was more for giving off light than it was to actually warm someone. So because Peter followed at a distance, he has to warm himself by a miniature fire. I wonder if any of us ever do this in our walk with Christ. We'll follow Jesus in our minds so that we can say, yes, I'm a follower and call ourselves a Christian, but not close enough that we can be warmed by the presence of him who once saved us, who once had our affection. What small fire are you warming yourself around that you built in your life that you never would have been interested a month after he saved you, a week after he found you, an hour after he showed you what true life is? fire it says he warmed himself there was a time when we were so enamored by God but now we find ourselves around competing flames because we've given up on chasing the consuming flame and competing flames small fires they can simply mean anything that takes your focus and attention away from your first flame your first fire your first love these can be sin, an addiction, bad company you keep, a toxic relationship. But a competing flame can also be good things in our eyes too. Your kids can be competing flames to God. Your family can be a competing flame if you make them one. Your friends, your hobbies, the way you serve in church can become your identity and become a competing flame that you build up in your life. It's anything that takes away the passion and that you start to tend more passionately than when you first tended the fire of God. And because Peter is outside, cold and alone, tending the, the mini flame, we see that he does turn his back on Jesus. Three times he's accused of being a follower and he's like, I'm not a follower. I promise you I'm not a follower. And 
He denies Jesus three times and goes away weeping bitterly. I can only imagine the guilt Peter felt in his heart at that moment. Or him getting the news of Peter, after you abandoned him, Jesus was crucified and killed. Those were probably the three darkest days in Peter's entire life. Maybe you're here and you've lost your first love, if you were genuine, if you were honest. You stood around competing fires, trying to warm yourself and wondering why you feel so cold. And today the enemy is trying to convince you you're done for, you're down for the count, there's no getting it back, you're doomed. But take it from someone who can tell you with all assurance, if you're here today and you feel like you've lost that first flame, you can get it back today. You can start tending that first fire today. There's hope for you. Want to know how I know this? Because Jesus didn't stay in that grave. We see the account of of Jesus drawing Peter back to himself. He finds Peter three days later. After he's risen, Peter doesn't recognize Jesus, but Peter calls out to him. He finds him fishing of all things, Peter's old job. He says, Peter, did you, you catch any fish all night? He says, no, I didn't catch any fish all night. And Jesus says, why don't you cast your net on the other side of the boat? And when he does that, Peter can't even reel the net in because there's so many fish. And he starts to think, wait a minute. That's that's what Jesus did when he first called me. And he remembers, you see, he remembers. And he swims to the shore and Jesus starts asking, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? And at third time, it says that Peter was troubled to his soul. You see what's happening here? And he starts to reckon some things in himself. And Jesus gives him a chance to reconcile. And he says, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. And when he wins his heart and his soul back, Jesus gives him something to do. He remembers, he repents. And then he says, Peter, feed my sheep. Jesus restored Peter out of love, and today he can do the exact same thing for you. How long are you going to stand around your small flame trying to warm yourself? Maybe you're here and like the church in Ephesus, you've been doing all the right things, but you found that the inner flame, the interior love has gone dark, and you don't love God to the same fervent degree you used to. Maybe you're here and you don't even know if God is real, but let me ask you this question. Don't you know you need him? Don't you know your life is meaningless without him? Don't you know that you need something greater than just something on this earth? That you're not just uh, atoms plus space plus time plus chance that you were formed by a creator? Your answer that you've been searching for is always loving Jesus rightly. And it's not just for someone who's new. It's all... I don't care if you've been a believer for 50 years. It's always the answer of loving Jesus rightly. Let me give you a little hint. The answer to a weak faith is not let me try to earn a strong faith. It's loving Jesus rightly. The answer to a bad marriage is not a good marriage. It's let me love Jesus rightly. Let me just have a love that says I'm going to seek him first and his kingdom. And then I know all those things will be added on to me. Maybe you're hearing... You've just been going through the gauntlet recently that your body's been racked by physical pain or 
someone betrayed you or hurt you, and you just have to say as a reminder to yourself almost of just a declaration of, I'm going to tell myself this, God, I don't care what anyone else says, what the enemy tries to convince me of through the hurt, through the betrayal, through the pain. God, you are still my first love. I still love you. You still have my heart. And what some of us need to do in this room before we leave is we need to understand the truth of God's love and we need to keep tending the first 